0: Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read for us the first eight verses from this passage. Hear now God's word. And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray together. Father, we have joy and we have sorrow in this passage, and we have joy and we have sorrow in this room. And I pray that if you are going to be preeminent in all things, that you will stand at the center and you will snap to attention the ways that we suffer and the ways that we worship, and then you will bend them into your glory for the light of the nations. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, my title for this sermon is this, Jerusalem's Sorrow is Samaria's Joy. We're going to watch as terrible suffering falls on these baby Christians in Jerusalem, which will ultimately lead to the salvation of the very people group these Jews would least expect or even want to be saved, and that is their bitter enemy, the Samaritans. So we're going to start with Jerusalem's sorrow and then we're going to look at Samaria's joy and then we're going to see the application for ourselves today. Let's talk about Jerusalem's sorrow. I don't know if you've been with us during this entire series in the book of Acts. We started in chapter 1 and the book of Acts, it reads like a pressure cooker. I mean, the tension just builds in this book from the world, from those in Jerusalem, against the church, against those who believe in Christ. It's almost like the devil is pervading these scenes, testing the city for their willingness to draw Christian blood. And so we start with an arrest and a warning. And then we see an arrest and a beating until finally, last chapter, the horror of Stephen's arrest, and he is put to death by stoning. And when that finally happens in the book of Acts, the bottom drops out, all bets are off, and it is now open hunting season on Christians in Jerusalem. Now, I doubt that Many of these men and women and children who responded to Peter's preaching at Pentecost and the disciples' door-to-door evangelism, I doubt any of them had any idea how much they would suffer in Jesus' name. And I think that because I don't think any of us realize how much we will be asked to call to suffer in Jesus' name. We don't think that's going to happen. And it's not Jesus' fault. He has always said that from the beginning. There is no fine print in following him. He has always told us that to follow me is to take up my cross and it is to walk in my footsteps. I mean, imagine if during his ministry on earth you had been there to hear him, even in those earliest days, like in the Sermon on the Mount, where you heard there's this miraculous man who's doing these signs and wonders, and he's saying these beautifully gracious things to the crowd, like our assurance, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and you're going to find rest for your souls. And you can't wait to hear Jesus' first sermon, and then you hear in that Sermon on the Mount something like, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you think to yourself, who would be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Who would get hurt for doing what is right? But it gets worse because Jesus says later on, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And it's like, wait a minute. Who is this person that we're following that invites slander and insult and beating and persecution and false accusations? Until in the upper room, Jesus says, as his parting words to the disciples and to us, If the world hates you, or he could have said, When the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. And it dawns on us that Jesus' reception with this world was his crucifixion. That's what he received for his words and his righteousness to this world. How is it that anybody who is following him expect to receive anything better than that? Everything that Jesus promised... Everything that Jesus told us was going to happen, everything Jesus said loudly before anybody followed him, Jerusalem got. Verse 1, it says, A great persecution arose against the church. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is off. This is off. And it's easy to read about this so many years later and just kind of drift over these verses. But if you pause and think about what's happening here, this is awful persecution that has befallen the church. They hardly have time to mourn Stephen's death. And then moms and dads and sisters and brothers, they're being dragged out of their households off to prison. They're immediately committed to jail. And I know we have said later that Paul, Saul turned Paul, he's a misogynist, he's a woman hater, he doesn't see the value of women in the church, but even Paul the pagan before he is converted knows this, if you want to crush the church, don't just go for the men, you gotta arrest men and women, you gotta get the women and throw them in jail, Paul knows this. And so now the church is left to this anxiety. We don't know when it's gonna come, but the door is gonna be kicked open and mom or dad are going to be dragged to prison and we don't know what to do. And it gets so bad in Jerusalem that people are actually willing to leave their city, leave their job, leave their neighborhood, leave their houses, run from that place and to settle in the most unlikely of place in Samaria, a people group that were once their enemy. And God is not mentioned a single time in that paragraph of suffering. Not a single mention to God. I mean, where is he? What is he up to? What good could possibly come of these new Christians suffering so much? Now, friend, I wonder where this sermon finds you this morning in your own life and your own walk. I wonder if it finds you in a place of suffering. I mean, what kind of pain, what kind of anguish, what kind of suffering is in this room alone that is hiding behind Sunday smiling faces? I don't even know what is here. It might be suffering as a result of following Jesus. Like, because you are following Jesus, Bad things are happening to you. People are not treating you well. You get the mild 21st century American persecution, which means if you try to speak truth to somebody, if you try to confront somebody, if you try to stand for what's right, you might be ostracized from certain circles. It might be persecution because you're following Jesus, or it might just be hardship as a follower of Jesus that you become a believer, but even now you suffer. It's sickness, it's hurt, it's pain, it's heartache, it's job loss, it's death. But whether you suffer for following Jesus or suffer simply as you follow Jesus, the net sum is the same, We just sang about a God who has all power and all goodness, and yet somehow, when I am in hardship, that power and that goodness seems to be in very short supply. Where is he? And what is he doing in my suffering? And that's one of those reminders that in the Bible and in our lives, God rarely, almost never, gives a direct explanation for our suffering. I know we're always looking for that. We want to know exactly why I lost my job, why I lost a loved one, why this hard thing is happening to me. Almost never in the Bible, and I'd submit rarely in person today, does God intervene and explain exactly why this hardship is happening? He didn't do it in Acts chapter 8 with these believers. He doesn't do it often today for us. Except for us, we look back on this situation and can see what they couldn't possibly see, as we get a 10,000-foot view, we actually understand that the suffering in Jerusalem is leading to a really good thing. If they had not been persecuted, they would not have done Acts 1-8, that the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If they hadn't been pushed, they never would have left we have the vantage point to see what God is doing through very specific suffering on the ground. He's using it for his greater glory. Jerusalem's suffering is going to be Samaria's joy. It's her joy. You've got these urban Jews from Jerusalem They would have never gone to Samaria. They would have never darkened the door of her enemy. They're now being chased into that region and they preach the gospel as they go. Acts says twice that they've been scattered, but here's the key to a sufferer. What feels like scattering to us is actually sowing to God. To us, it looks like scattering. To God, this is sowing. What you and I call being buried alive, God calls planting. And what you and I call drowning, God calls watering. What sure feels like losing in our life, God calls pruning. If we are going to say in Lent and Good Friday that God's greatest triumph was the death of his son on a cross, then what triumphs in what deaths is God going to bring in a believer's life today? John 12, 24, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's amazing how many times in the Gospels that Jesus refers to a Christian as a seed. It was an agrarian culture. It's a great illustration, but how many times does Jesus, like that passage, refer to you and I as a seed and think for just a minute about the life of a seed. I mean, if you and I were a seed, you get separated from your friends, you get buried alive, you get waterboarded, you get split open, something comes out of your front, something comes out of your back. As soon as you grow tall enough, somebody chops off half your arms, and where you bear fruit, the gardener takes all of that your kids that are born to you, they get put in a little dish in the back of the fridge for next planting season. I mean, the life of a seed is awful. And Jesus says, this is what I am calling you to. This is the life of a believer. I feel like I should do an altar call now so that while the moment is hot, we know what we're responding to in Christ. John 12, 24 Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. You have just walked into God's upside-down kingdom, where losing is gaining, where you go down to go up, Where every ounce of suffering in this life is stored up for God's greater glory. Just look how marvelous this is in our passage. Sometimes this is too sensitive to talk about in our life first. So look at suffering in other people's lives and look how it happens here. Watch how Jerusalem's loss is Samaria's gain. It's like the parable of the good Samaritan in the reverse. Now it's the Jews who are helping the Samaritans, not the Samaritan that's helping the Jew. And this is marvelous in God's eyes. Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see how that word scatter and the word sow could be used interchangeably? Now those who were sowed went about preaching the word. What surely felt like running as fast as you could from Jerusalem appears to the Sumerians as arriving with good news. And what's on the lips of these Christians that have suffered so much? They've lost homes, they've lost family members, they've lost jobs, they've lost peace of mind, they've lost safety and security, they don't know what's next, they don't know what God is up to, and they appear in Samaria with harrowing stories of suffering and persecution. Is that what's on their lips? Is that what they begin to tell their neighbors? No. They don't talk about that at all. They don't have time for that. Instead, verse 4, they wanted to talk about the Word. Verse 5, they wanted to talk about Christ. That's what they talked about. Not the suffering they endured, but the Christ that they follow. Now, do you know a person in your life, a believer, who has suffered awful things? I mean, you know the story of their suffering and it feels like bad things keep happening to this person. But when you're with them, they don't want to talk about their suffering. They want to talk about Jesus. Do You know somebody like that? I don't mean like the happy-go-lucky version that's like naively Pollyanna, um, always putting a a Jesus juke spin on something. I don't like that. I don't go for that. I'm talking about the substantive sufferer who, as much bad happens to them, they see Jesus shine brightly and they want to talk about it. And whenever you see it, it's compassionate. It's telling, it's convicting, and I think I want more people like this in my life. They suffer with Jesus' name on their lips. On the other hand, there's the rest of us who are playing the see who has a worse game, right? When we get with each other, have you ever played that game? you say was going bad in your life, and then they're topping you with something that's going bad in their life, right? And so you say, I've got COVID, and they say, I got COVID twice. (laughs) Say, all right, well, it's slow at work for me. And they say, well, I lost my job. Like, all right, I woke up with a sore throat this morning. Well, I was born without a throat. Okay, I can't win, man. This is terrible. Have you ever played that game with somebody? And we all played it every day in 2020 and now into 2021. Have you ever played that game and walked away satisfied and happy and said, this is the abundant life? I'm glad I got that off my chest. This is good. Of course you haven't, because the secret to the game of who has it worse is you can't win. You can't out-grumble the world. Believe me, I have tried. I've had great material. I've had things to share. I have openly shared it with others. And I have sought condolences from the world. And I don't get it because it is a game that is not possible to win. Christian, you cannot out-grumble the world. But you have a very real chance to out-enjoy out savor, out celebrate your life in the world in Christ. You are never going to come up with more reasons to complain than a pagan. That's impossible. You can't do that because the world has an infinite access to its own depravity of seeing the glass half full. And why are you as a believer trying to play the game on their terms, on their turf, when meanwhile, you and I have infinite material to celebrate. Infinite material to celebrate a member of our church dying of cancer, a believer in our midst who has lost a a loved one. Stephen himself being stoned to death has infinite material to have the name of Jesus on his or her lips. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so these Samaritans that don't really know what's going on, they watch these Jerusalemites who have been humbled by suffering. They move into the region. They're coming without homes. They're coming missing family members. They're coming having lost jobs. Some of them probably showed up with just the shirt on their backs or or very few possessions, and they're not even talking about that. And that doesn't make sense because they're talking about the word. And they're talking about the word made flesh, the Christ. And it's like life is short, and words are precious. Let's talk about the Jesus at the center of my suffering. And you see what happens to everybody watching in verse 8? there was much joy in that city. Jerusalem's sorrow is Samaria's joy. Now let's take a moment to apply that to ourselves. In what ways might our sorrow, our affliction, be another person's comfort and joy? Ironically, it is Saul turned Paul who gives us the answer in one of his letters. And I say ironically, because in Acts chapter 8, it is Saul turned Paul who is uh, bringing the affliction. He's bringing the persecution. And it's later in life that he's able to answer as a believer why God uses this and how it is valuable. And I think he probably picked that up in Acts chapter 8 without even noticing it. I think he probably thought to his unborn again mind in that moment, wow, I'm hurting these people and they go on to make other people happy. Someday I'm going to figure that out. He does in the next chapter, in chapter nine. Think of the ways we suffer now, Christian. I mean, think of the big S suffering, the little S suffering. There is huge suffering in this room. I've heard harrowing stories in this room from the past or the present of the ways in which we have suffered and those readily come to mind. But I also challenge us to think about the little suffering that we don't really give credence to because it's not the big stuff. If it's not cancer, then I'm not going to count it as suffering. But there are a thousand ways that we suffer hardship and tension and little losses and regrets. And... Those happen daily and weekly and monthly and wash over us so quickly in this life. We barely take a moment to pause and react in any sanctified way. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in, in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Paul says, I'm going to give us a two-step tango to the believer in suffering that is true of the ways in which we hurt in Jesus' name. Number one, when I suffer, I suffer always in communion with Jesus. He is not apart from me when I'm hurting. He is with me. If I share abundantly in affliction, I get to share abundantly in his comfort. He is always with me in my suffering. And number two, it may be Christ's means to comfort or to save others. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. Meaning I don't get to see that in my life if I'm living out Acts chapter 8, but many years from now, 2,000 years from now, it might be understood that the suffering that I bore in Jesus' name was the very thing he used to encourage a believer or to convict an unbeliever and to lead them to faith. And I never saw that in my life or got credit for it. It is all God and all his glory. And all of a sudden, I am no longer the central character in the story that God is telling. I want that spot. I want to be the protagonist. I want to have the spotlight. I want answers for my suffering. I want to know that if I'm hurting, that the ends justifies the means and I can see the way that God is doing it. But instead, I fade to the backgrounds in my suffering. And God stands in the foreground. And his glory is preeminent in those moments. And as a believer, I'm learning to say daily, let it be so. Let my suffering be another's joy. Let me decrease. Jesus, please let me decrease and let you and your name increase. And when that footnote of our story comes in heaven for the story that God is writing, it's going to read something like Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered, it was just those. I don't even remember their names. I don't even remember their faces. I hardly remember anything about them except, now those who were scattered from suffering went about preaching the word. I forget their names. I forget their celebrity and their reputation. What I do remember clearly is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, let it be so. As painful as it is to pray, let it be so. Take us in your hands as clay. Mold us even in painful ways of affliction, suffering, persecution, insult, injury, and loss, so that we might share abundantly in your comfort, and in our affliction and sorrow, we might be the joy to another. Then you would shine, and your name would be great, We would decrease, you would increase. Hallelujah, thanks be to God. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.